Now this morning I want to give to you the last message in this brief series of three sermons in connection with the handling of problems. Let me very, very quickly review the first two sermons. In the first sermon, we stated first of all the obvious, everybody has problems. Everybody, Christians included, everybody has problems of many kinds. Secondly, Christians can solve their problems. 1 Corinthians 10.13 in particular speaks to that. There is no trial, testing, temptation which has taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will with the temptation make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. Christians can solve their problems. Thirdly, problem solving does take work. We don't believe in magic dust. We don't believe in quick solutions. Problem solving takes work. We have to work at our problems and dealing with them. And fourthly, the Bible has the answer. The Word of God is the great lamp for our feet, the guide for our pathway. The Bible has the answer. In last Sunday morning's message, we looked at that word each, this little acrostic suggested to us by uh, Dr. Wayne Mack, Some of us know of this good brother personally. He's preached here in this church. You remember the acrostic each. Emotions, actions, concepts and habits. That problems usually arise in one of these areas. We have to examine our problems in the light of these areas. Are they coming out of the emotional elements? Are our emotions telling us something? You've got problems. Actions, what are we doing that perhaps God does not want us to do or are we not doing something that God does want us to do conceptual level is our thinking biblical is our mind informed by Holy Scripture and the habitual level how vital that is those things that we have learned to do by doing them so many many times we'll come back to that again even today Now today we're going to try and look at certain specifics in dealing with problems and I begin by saying again the obvious that we do need to study the problem. When we get down to specifically handling difficulties we need to study the problem and we need perhaps to use that little acrostic that we've just uh, revised again, uh, E-A-C-H, we need to look at the problem in the light of this of the light of all of these various areas, emotions, actions, thoughts or concepts and habits. It may be helpful, I'm not going to delay on this too much, but it may be helpful simply to ask certain questions of our particular difficulty. It may be a difficulty that is recurring. So we ask the question, what happened? Think about that. We have to analyze our problems. What happened? we may ask the question, when did it happen? Or when does it happen, if it's a recurring problem? So you have to think about that. When does this particular problem crop up? I'm having trouble with a certain matter, a certain difficulty. When does this happen? What leads up to it? Are there certain contributing factors? Maybe you see, as you begin to look at a problem, you begin to see, aha, certain things in common this happens all the time and these things seem to be contributing all the time what time does it happen 
Is it a particular time of day when certain problems happen for you? That's possible, you know. A certain time in the month, even a certain time in the year. Certain problems that, that uh, take place that we have to grapple with and maybe when we think of this, we see that there is some significance in the day, in the month, in the year that helps us to deal with it. Who is present when this problem occurs? Never thought about that. When you've been grappling with certain problems, you get yourself into a state, you sit down and say, now who is around? Who is present when this takes place? It may be that that, uh, there are parents or in-laws or certain church members, certain people, and somehow when you are involved with these people, you end up with problems. It's important to know that if you're going to deal with the problem. And then you need to ask yourself, how did I respond to what happened? Something happened, I got into a problem, how did I respond to it? And on the other side of the coin, how should I have responded to it? It may be good to jot those things down, and as you're grappling with a difficulty in the midst of a difficulty, ask those in order to help you to study the problem. You need to understand the problem before you can solve it. Now I'm going to leave that there because as I said I don't want to major on that but I want to major on some other things so the second thing I want to say is study the word of God. Study the problem, study the word of God. Remember the passage that we considered in the first message in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reproof, for teaching, for reproof, for correction for instruction in righteousness that the man of God, the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is essential that we have confidence in the scriptures. And it's very important for me to emphasize this because we are living in a day when there is a concerted effort at undermining confidence in the scriptures. There is a bombardment from many directions against the word of God. And it is crucial for you and for me, dear friends, to hold on and to maintain confidence in the Word of God. If we are going to solve our problems, the Scriptures are essential and we must have confidence in them. And we must see the Scriptures as having the answers to our needs. Now, flowing out of that, as we think in terms of specific handling of problems, Uh, I want to lay down certain things and in these things is the main part of the message. So, first of all, you ought, as you study the Bible, to look, to look for God's instructions with reference to biblical change in your life. Be on the lookout as you study the Bible for God's instructions, God's directives, if you like for biblical change that's needed in your life. Many of our problems crop up because we are not what God would have us to be. Many of our problems flow from that. We are not what God would have us to be or we do not do what God would have us to do. Remember what I said a couple of weeks ago that Christians are not to operate merely on feelings. We don't say, well, do I feel like doing this or that or the other? 
The question is, does God require you to do this or that or the other? It's not what do I feel like doing, it's what ought I to do in the light of the word of God. So we mustn't operate on the basis of mere feeling. That, that's, a, that's a recipe for disaster, you know. Some people don't pray because they say, I don't feel like praying. My dear friend, you should pray whether you feel like it or not. It's oftentimes in the praying that God will give <clears throat> the feeling like it, as it were. Some people say, I won't read my Bible today because I don't feel like reading my Bible. You should read your Bible whether you feel like it or not. I won't go to church today because I don't feel like going to church. Well, you get the idea. It's disastrous to operate on the, totally on the level of feelings. Of course, our feelings are going to be involved in all of our actions, all of our decisions. But you mustn't operate on that basis alone, feelings. No, we have to operate on the Word of God, on the instructions of Holy Scripture. And we must accept the fact <coughs> that we are responsible to respond to the Word of God. We are responsible. See, we often try to evade responsibility, don't we? We say, well, I have this problem, but he's responsible for it. She's responsible for it. Yeah, yeah, I'm acting this way, but that person's responsible. This deacon, that elder, this neighbor, that wife, this husband, this brother, this sister, this mother, this father. Everybody else is responsible but me. That's the way human nature is, isn't it? I mean, it was manifested right back in the Garden of Eden, right at the very dawn of human history. It was manifested right after the fall. If you know your Bible, you know what I'm talking about. Adam, why have you sinned against me? Oh, the woman that you gave me, she, she was the trouble, you see. It was his immediate reaction. Because we're ready to admit the problem, but we don't want to be responsible. Now sometimes, sometimes, there are elements of difficulties, of course, for which we cannot be responsible. We cannot be responsible for what other people do all the time. But the point is, you see, we are responsible for what we do. We are responsible for what we are. We are responsible for the way we are responding to the Word of God. You are responsible for that, my friend, if you're a Christian this morning. Now, we ended the message last week in talking about that habitual level, as we call it. The habitual level. And you know, again, many of our problems arise, you see, because we do things, we say things, we react to things habitually. And the problem is that as Christians, very often, we respond in a non-Christian way. Now, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, you see, in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he had to address them in in this way, he had to rebuke them. 1 Corinthians 3, I'm looking at 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3. He said, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. Now, why did he have to say that? He says in verse 3, For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? 
What he's really saying here is that you're behaving like non-Christians in this area of the thing. What had happened? Well, someone had come along in the Christian church and they'd begun a little clique, a little group of people over here, and uh, they were saying, we are Paul's party. We are Paul's party. Now, how did the other people in the church respond to this? Well, some responded by saying, oh yeah? Oh yeah? Well, we are Peter's party. So there was a second group set up. And then some others said, oh, is that so? Well, let me tell, let us tell you this. There's another group of us over here. You're not the only ones in this church, you know. We belong to Apollos' party. And then there was a very, very spiritual group. Oh, very spiritual. Very pious people. And they said, oh yeah, well we can top that. We are Christ's party. We are the real spiritual ones. And Paul says, oh, what in the world is going on in this church? He says, you are responding to these situations like unbelievers, like carnal people, like mere men, instead of Christian people, transformed people, people who know the grace of God. He said, I can't speak to you as though you're mature Christians, but like little babies. But you see, our problem is that so many of the habits of the old life, they just seem to happen all the time, don't they? That's the problem. But when we become Christians, you see, God is expecting us not to react the way we did before. God is not expecting us to behave like non-Christians when we are the recipients of His grace. And part of being a Christian is putting off the old ways, the old habits. Putting them off and putting on something different. So turn with me now to Ephesians 4, the passage that John read for us this morning. And let's see how the Apostle Paul lays this out for us in a very wonderful way in Ephesians chapter 4. You notice what he says in verses 22 through 24. Well, let me go back. Come back with me to verse 17 even, because he says here what I've just been bringing your attention to. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. To walk, of course, he's talking about their conduct. He says, now I'm asserting this, you should not act like the other Gentiles. Remember, you are Christian Gentiles now. You are converted Gentiles. Don't behave like they do. Like you did when you were with them and part of them. Don't do that. Now verse 22 he says, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in righteousness and true holiness. Now there are those who with some good reason suggest that the translation might be refined a little bit here. Professor John Murray is one of them and puts it this way. Verse 22, that, So that you have put off the old man. The old man standing for what we were in unregenerate condition in Adam, if you like what we were. He says, now you have put off the old man 
and you are being renewed in the spirit of your mind verse 23 and you have put on the new man you're now in Christ you're not in Adam you're in Christ you have put off the old man you have put on the new man alright he says so what? well now in verse 25 for the next few verses he's going to answer that question this is what says Paul you have now to put off the accompaniments of the old man and put on the characteristics of the new man so see what he says in verse 25 therefore please follow right along therefore putting away lying I see he's dealing with things that the heathens the pagans of his day had problems with the Ephesians had problems in the area of being truthful being truthful now he says alright look having put off the old man and put on the new man put away lying each one speak truth with his neighbor now when J. Adams deals with this text he says something rather interesting you know when we were children I hope it's true for Canadian children at least I think it is of Canadian people but in England I remember when we were kids we used to delight to say to the next person when is a door not a door? You know that one? The answer is, when it's a jar. Now, a jar, of course, means to be opened a little bit. So when is a door not a door? When it's a jar. Adam says, you know, that's, very, that's a very profound statement. Because it says a door ceases to be a door only when it becomes something else. So he says into this verse, when does a person stop being a liar? Is it when he stops actually telling lies? No, not necessarily. Because he may do that for a period, then he may start lying again. No, Adam says, Paul's point is that a man stops becoming a liar only when he begins to be a truthful man. And so Paul does not merely say, put away lying. Look at verse 25. He doesn't simply say, put away lying. He also adds, speak truth with your neighbor. You have to stop the one and start the other. And if the problem is lying, that's the way that one has to deal with it. Put off lies and put on truthfulness, says Paul. Now he does this again, you see, for instance, in verse 28, with the problem of stealing, which again was a problem amongst uh, these converted heathen. And see, where well, he does the same thing. Let him who stole steal no longer. Well, again... We ask Adams this question. When does a man, when is a thief not a thief? You see, when is a thief not a thief? Is it when he stops stealing? Well, not necessarily. He may stop stealing for a while to suit his own purposes, but he may still be a thief and he'll go back to it. When is a thief not a thief? A thief is not a thief when he begins to be a hard-working man who gives to other people instead of taking from them. That's what Paul says. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give to him who is in need and when you see a man who has been a thief suddenly become a hard working individual who distributes his goods to others you can say aha he stopped being a thief that's all just like when you see a person who, who is habitually and continually a truth teller he stopped being a liar he's become a, tr a truthful person and these things you know are, are pertinent to us all because 
we're, we're all prone to these things. We're prone to these things, aren't we? Let me illustrate it. And deal with your conscience and mine at the same time, because I'm guilty of this too. So your wife does something that you don't like? Well, it's the same way, other way around, of course. Husband, wives take it to yourselves, husbands take it to yourselves. Look, I'll, I'll be gracious, I'll say it's the husbands. The wife says them something that we don't like, and so you get a little bit pouty, you know, you get a little bit quiet. You know, that's the way I do. I get quiet, I don't say too much, right? So my wife says to me, Well, what's up with you? Nothing. You liar, right? You liar. Of course there's something up with you, yeah. But don't we all do that? That's lies. What's the matter with you? Nothing. That's a lie. That's a lie. I'm trying to illustrate you see how, well, how habit comes. You know, I find myself, people say, hey, how are you? Fine. No, I say, yeah, just a minute. No, I'm not fine. I've got a sore throat. i got a bit of a cough and cold and so forth. But you see, we have these habitual responses and sometimes we fall into these things. And so Paul is saying, you see, now in dealing with these problems, you have to, you have to get into the principle of putting off and putting on. Put off lying, put on truthfulness. Put off stealing, put on hard work and giving to other people. He says it again, he goes to another illustration for here. In Ephesians 4, verse 29, you get a problem with foul mouth. A lot of people have, too many. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But he doesn't stop there. But what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. So don't just stop being foul-mouthed, but become one whose speech is a blessing to people, says Paul. That's the way to deal with it. Start practicing the positive art of edifying speech. He does the same thing again in verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. But he doesn't stop there. And... Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. So you see, and, and if you follow this through, I haven't time this morning to develop this, but you can follow this through as your own personal Bible study. You find out how many times in the Scripture you get this putting off and putting on mechanism. Putting off, putting on. Putting off lying, putting on truthfulness. Putting off corrupt speech, putting on edifying speech. Putting away lying, putting on truthfulness. Putting away bitterness, putting on kindness and so forth. We have to look as we study the Bible for God's directives for biblical change. And there's one of them. Now the second thing I want to say is this, under this second heading of studying the Word of God, that we are to restructure our lives in accordance with biblical principles. If we're going to handle problems properly, we have to have lives which are structured according to the word of God. I want to enlarge on that to some degree. So I would say this. That we are to avoid all people, things, events and activities that will lead us into temptation. If we are restructuring our lives to handle problems, to eliminate problems, to deal with problems, we have to avoid all people, things, events, activities that will lead us into temptation. Now look with me at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33. 
1 Corinthians 15.33 a very succinct statement from the Apostle Paul a very pointed statement and a very very important statement 1 Corinthians 15.33 do not be deceived he says don't let yourself be fooled evil company corrupts good habits evil company corrupts good habits the New International Version expresses it this way bad company corrupts good character you know that's a simple truth but man I'll tell you that is so profoundly so it is so true bad company corrupts good character and people need to understand that young and old and the word of God lays it down for us here in 1 Corinthians 15 if we want to avoid many problems then we have to recognize that we must avoid things and people and events and activities that will lead us into troubles and into difficulties and into problems sometimes young people get into, into troubles and problems and so forth and then they begin to wail and wonder why and there's no mystery to it at all because they have been attached to people who will do them nothing but evil in terms of a spiritual perspective and a Christian viewpoint. Now I am not talking here about isolationism. I want to emphasize that. I'm not saying that Christian people ought not to have unconverted friends and so forth and contacts. In fact, I think quite the contrary. That Christian people ought to be in touch with the unconverted folk around them so that we might obviously be witnesses to them I'm not talking about monastic withdrawal here but I am saying that we must not be intimately involved with those people or those events or activities that are going to lead us into trouble. And if only, if only, if only we could get that through the heads of many precious young people and older people. Young Christians especially need to recognize this you have to restructure your life and that's the first thing you've got to do and I'm speaking out of personal experience I wasn't brought up in a, in a uh, strong Christian religious home I was, I was uh, a fellow just totally immersed in this world and with some pretty rough characters and the first thing that happened in my own life when I became a Christian is that I began to develop new friendships and all structures had to go and new ones came into place and this is one of the things that was inevitable, I found. That if I wanted to walk in God's way then it was no point keeping the devil's company, is it? And that's exactly what the Word of God says to us in 1 Corinthians 15.33. The second thing is this, establish a regular devotional life. Establish a regular devotional life even if it's only brief for a little while even if it's only five minutes every day spend some time with God in the word of God at the throne of God get into a regular you see you're forming new habits the habitual level good habits regular devotional life thirdly establish regular church attendance patterns well I hope I'm speaking to those who are mostly at least are convinced about that we do need to establish regular church attendance 
And we shouldn't just be once a day, you know, or once a week as even. No, 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 no. The Lord's Day should be the Lord's Day. Morning and evening. It should be our delight and our joy to be in the house of God. And I think that in many ways we have much to thank God for in that respect here. That we do have, generally speaking, when all other things are equal as it were, we have been had encouraging evening services. But it isn't always that way. And it is a fact that in many evangelical churches and in some reformed Baptist churches, I hear pastors bewailing the fact that their morning services are encouraging but their evening services are disastrous. That is a reflection, my friends, of a poor spiritual state. I cannot understand how people can think that, well, once is enough. My friend, your appetite must be poor. In fact, let me put it on the analogy level. Is there anybody here? Maybe there are some. Don't respond. This is a rhetorical question. But tell me after, maybe. But I wonder, is anybody here? How many are there here who just say to their wives, well, you know, one meal a day is quite enough. Not too many, I would suspect. Not too many. No breakfast. No lunch. No snack before. Just, just once. No, 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 no. Oh, no. Oh, hey, where's my two meals a day? Three meals a day? Whatever. Yes, because you've got a healthy physical appetite and that's good, but what's your problem in terms of spiritual things when once a day on Sunday and sometimes once a week you think is all that you need? No, establish regular church attendance and our children. Oh, mothers and fathers, our children ought to be brought up, you see, within this pattern that this is the way it is in their family. And not only in terms of attendance, of course, but becoming part of the life of the church. Get involved in things. Be out to the service. Midweek meetings, special meetings. Get involved in the life of the church. Fourthly, don't be a loner. Don't be a loner. Make Christian friends. You know, there are some people who are by nature loners. I recognize that. But if you're a Christian, my friend, you have to watch that. You have to guard against that. I remember when Pastor Latimer was making this point, and I've acknowledged my indebtedness to him in all of this series. I want to be ethical and I acknowledge that. And those of you who know him, you know he's, he's quite a character. <laughs> I remember that he said... He said, you know, there are some people who say, I don't need anybody else but God. I only need God. Then he said, baloney! <laughs> baloney! That's what that is. That's not spirituality. I only need the Lord. It is baloney. It's nonsense. God hasn't made us that way. And if we find ourselves tending to being a loner and being up on our own, beware of that. Counteract that. Get Christian friends. Find people that will befriend you. It may be helpful to have one particular friend to whom, with whom you can share problems and seek help. But if that's the case, make sure it's a godly person. A godly person. Now, you know, if we have a Christian couple, a husband and wife who are Christians, a wife ought to be the best friend of the husband. A husband ought to be the best friend of the wife. You know, it's a sad, sad thing if that's the case. If we can't look upon our wives and husbands as our friends, our best friends, 
That's tragic. And we ought to be able to share with each other our problems on a spiritual level. Get some help, get some encouragement, get some comments and so forth. Now if you're a single person, of course, obviously that won't pertain. But try and find some person to whom you can get very close and, and have a friendship with, with whom you can share the deepest needs of your heart. But I say again, it's got to be a godly person. It's got to be a godly person. And when you get that, don't get mad when they point out your faults. Right? Don't get mad when this friend of yours points out your faults to you. Thank them for that. Thank them for that. That's part of the responsibility to you, right? Sure it is. Robert Murray McShane, that wonderful servant of Christ in Scotland, in the last century, who still has left a fragrance behind him that people are blessed by even today, he said, he is your best friend who tells you the most truth. That's a great statement, you know. He is your best friend who tells you the most truth. It's not the flatterer. The Bible has a lot of very negative things to say about flatterers. It's the people who tell, the person who tells you the truth. Not maliciously, but graciously. Spurgeon says to his student ministers, he said, never complain if you have people in the congregation who will point out to you your faults as a preacher. I hope I will never complain about that. I hope I never have. I don't think I have. When people have suggested things that uh, in terms of the preaching that might be ways of improvement and so forth, I'm grateful for that. Spurgeon says to his ministerial students, don't get on your high horse because someone comes along. And he had a person when he was a young man, the great Spurgeon. And remember, when this guy was age 20, he was preaching to the largest congregation in Victorian England. This was a phenomenon. But he was a young man, he did have certain problems. When he came to London, it's very humorous to read when he first came to London, he was a country boy. Cambridge country boy and he had this great big huge uh, I think it was red and white spotted handkerchief which he used to bring out of his pocket and flourish you know grandly and he thought this would be wonderfully eloquent with his handkerchief and uh, I'm not sure it was perhaps even the lady that became his wife but somebody said to him you know will you please for goodness sake put away that obnoxious handkerchief when you're in the pulpit he had a man in his, in his pulpit who would write little notes to him and give them to him he wouldn't he just quite quietly just give them to him and he'd read them and from this we got that famous story which I delight to tell when Spurgeon used to frequently quote as a young man top ladies hymn nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling it's a wonderful verse and it illustrates the truth so well but he kept saying this again and again and again and this little guy wrote a note to this day he said we are now sufficiently convinced of the vacuity of your hand now, if you're good in English, you should understand that. If you don't know what vacuity is, I'm sorry for you. Don't complain if people tell you you're false. Don't complain when they say to you, listen, can I speak to you about this? I'm concerned. I see this in you. You know, we're all so touchy, aren't we? We're all so defensive. It's terrible. I, I, I'm sure I'm as bad as the rest. And we, we have to work on this. We're all so defensive when someone has to say something again. Don't be that way. It may be. If it's not true, look at it. If it isn't true, then fine, thank you. If you don't see any need for it, but it may be true. And if it's true, they're doing you a favour to try and help you on the road of grace and on the pilgrimage. So get that friend. Don't be a loner. Get Christian companions and someone with whom you can share your secrets. And then this also. Let people know that you're a Christian 
and do it right away. If you're in work, if you're in the factory, your office, whatever it is, let people know. Nail your colours to the mast. I remember my, my pastor said that to me, uh, oh, I don't even know how many years it is back now, well, 30 years I guess. 30 years ago when I was first going in as a very young Christian into the, into the British Army to do my two years service. Oh boy, this was the testing ground. Getting thrown into all those ungodly servicemen. And he said that to me. He says, now Bill, nail your colors to the mast. And I remember thinking, it's all right for you saying that. You know, because he'd been actually a conscientious objective in the war. He'd never been in the services. But to his credit, I must say, there was never a more courageous Christian in all the world than, uh, than he. And so he had a right to say that. But I remember thinking that. Oh, it's okay for you to say that. Nail your colors to the mass. Well, thank God, by his grace, I was able to do so. And we must do so. It saves us a lot of problems, you know. It'll save you a lot of problems. It'll cut off problems before they reach you. If you make it clear, wherever you're in the school, in the university, in the office, hospital, wherever, make it known you're a Christian. You're a believer. And then when problems do arise, try to act on them immediately. Try to act on them immediately. You know Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 14, this magnificent book of Proverbs. I can't speak uh, highly enough of it, it's just tremendous. It says in chapter 17 verse 14, the beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore stop contention before a quarrel starts. I wrote an editorial for Reformation Canada just uh, a few months ago and uh, in there I recounted reading an old cartoon character when I was a young fellow in England many years ago uh, I, I think his name was Pops I think the cartoon was called Pops his name was Pops anyway and I never forgot this one statement because I thought as a young fellow it was just hilarious it's not all that funny but to me as a little boy it was hilarious but there's a lot of wisdom in it some fellow comes along Pops is a big fat man and some guy comes along to him and he says Pops what's the best way to stop wars and Pops says don't start them there's a lot of wisdom in that you know isn't there don't start and that's what the word of God is saying here nip it in the bud before the quarrel starts kill it the Puritans had this wonderful saying you know that's been repeated many times it's easier to crush an egg than to kill a serpent it's easier to crush an egg than to kill a serpent in other words once you know you, you've been in your car Sometimes you haven't put the brake on, your thought on an incline, it begins to roll. You ever had that experience? And <laughs> you're rushing wrong, on one, trying to get one leg in the car onto the brake and so forth? It's interesting. It's an interesting experience. When's the best place to stop that car? That's tough. Not halfway, it's halfway down, brother, forget it. Two thirds down, you're done. That's tough. Deal with problems immediately. Act quickly when they arrive. Listen, if you've got a problem with a fellow Christian in the church, don't let it fester. Don't let it go on and on and on, month after month. Deal with it. Deal with it. You'll find it easier. The longer you let the problem go, the more complex and difficult it becomes. Well, all of these things I've thrown out to you under the general idea of restructuring your life in accordance with biblical principles. Now I have to be very quickly on the last two. So this is in fact the third major point. Practice the new biblical pattern of life. Practice it. Do it. 
You see, it's, it's no good knowing these kind of things if we don't actually practice. To stop doing certain things, you see, is never enough. You know the old saying that nature abhors a vacuum. Something will always move in. Well, you have to make sure that the right thing moves in. And again, let me show you that this is a biblical principle. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at this passage for a moment, would you? 2 Timothy 2. You see, I'm trying to show you here that you have to practice the new pattern, that you cannot have a vacuum. You can't simply say, well, I will not do this. You must then do other things. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22. The statement is, flee also youthful lusts. Now, how many times has that verse been quoted? And I'm condemning myself because I've quoted that verse and I've stopped right there. That's all I've done. I've quoted, flee also youthful lusts. But that's not all he says, is it? But pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You see, Paul doesn't just simply say, well, well, stop that. Flee youthful lust. That's not all of his message. He says, and on the other hand, go after these things. Righteousness, faith, love, peace, and so forth. Practice the pattern you see. Again, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. 1 Timothy 4, 7. Reject profane and old wives' fables, says Paul. Reject that kind of gossipy talk that so often is the bane of a congregation. Yeah, but that's not all he says. And exercise yourself rather to godliness. You know the word exercise there is the Greek word, is the word from which we get our English word gymnasium. Give yourself vigorously with activity, intense activity. Sweat at it, work at it. Work at what? Godliness. Godliness. The New International Version translates it, train yourself to be godly. That's a good expression. It's a good way of putting it. Train yourself to be godly. Work at it. Work at it. Put these things into practice. Implement the new structure of your life. Do it, do it, do it, do it! Otherwise you'll fail and fall and stumble and be all kinds of problems. Now I have to close quickly with this last exhortation. Don't give up. Don't give up. Solving problems, attempting to solve them, don't give up. It is an ongoing work because you know it's involved with our sanctification. Sanctification is an ongoing work. Don't give up. Sometimes we are going to blow it. We are going to make mistakes. We are going to foul things up. And the tendency then is to, ah, the quit. This church begins. Don't do that. For instance, in, in one's devotional life. There are going to come periods in your life, perhaps, and maybe you've just gotten the pattern started, you know, and you're getting into a regular devotional life. You say, this is wonderful. I'm implementing what the pastor was telling us there. This is a new pattern of life. And then all of a sudden, something happens. Your life is totally upset, and it's just you just don't get around to it for three, four days. No devotions. And your conscience smites you, and the devil makes the most of it. 
and you think, oh, brother, I'm a total failure. It's all over. It's hopeless. No, no. No. Don't give up. Go back to it. Go back to it. Go back to it. Or the control of anger. Some people have a problem with anger. And you know, there's the, what I call the volcanic type, you know. The volcanic type. Every church has them. And you just say five words and boom! They've erupted, you know. Whoa. A lot of problems can come from that. And here's a poor brother and he's really been working on the control of his anger and when people have said things that would have provoked him, he's prayed, he sends a prayer to God and the Lord's given him grace and he's really doing well on this. And then someone just said something to him that really provokes him and bang, up he goes, you know, just like a rock. Oh boy, and there's fire everywhere. And he thinks, oh, I've blocked him. I'm hopeless, I'm useless. No, no, no. See, that's the way the devil gets to get us thinking, though. He'll put his foot on your neck and he'll push you down, down, down. You're hopeless, you're useless, you, you'll never do it, you'll never do it. Don't, no, don't let him do that to you. No, don't give up. Come back and go at it again. Husband and wife relationship. You've been working at this maybe for a long time. and You get discouraged sometimes. Don't give up. Don't give up. Remember, dear friends, that though Christians aim for perfection in this life, we don't reach it. We recognize that. It is to be a constant striving after the perfection. It is to be a constant effort and aim to do what we ought to do and be what we ought to do and never forget the wonderful statement of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. Never forget this, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank God for that statement in Scripture. So when we do blow it and we do fail, and we do stumble, and all of these things happen to us. All right, come to God. Get down before God. Confess your sin. Acknowledge it before Him. But remember this, that He is faithful and just to forgive your sin. And get up and get back to it again. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Don't let Satan press you down into the mire of depression and tell you it will never work, you'll never succeed. Don't allow that to happen. I was just reading last night that magnificent work, Pilgrim's Progress. I was reading a little piece out of it. What a magnificent thing that is. I think that's the greatest book on Christian experience outside of the Bible that's ever been written. The more I read it, the more astounded I am. It's a wonderful book. And I was reading again, you know, when Apollyon is attacking Pilgrim. And if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress and you're not familiar with it, do so, do so, do so to bless your heart. And Apollyon is, is just about to give him the final thrust. He's just really given him the works. You know. And Christian cries out in the words of Scripture, Rejoice not over me, O mine enemy, when I am down, I will rise again. And he takes his sword and he gives him a thrust and sends him off on his way. <laughs>